Um, the polarization in our country has obviously only gotten worse. If you can't even be told the truth about this, I mean, it's, you know, we see on Twitter and online that if you're a Trump voter, you're called a racist or a homophobic or anti-woman or, you know, whatever charge against your character that comes up with. And it makes it impossible to believe the data because people are just too afraid to say who they really are voting for. So, the, you know, the one theory is that it's Trump voters screwing with uh, with people doing polls. And then there's yet another theory. There's so many theories on every piece of what we're talking about today. And this is, frankly, tr coming from Trump. He's saying that pollsters want to make it look like he doesn't have a chance because they don't want him to win. I know you've addressed this directly. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I, I actually had a long think about this. And, you know, I think pollsters definitely have their own biased opinions and want different people to win, but you have to decide if they're more willing to screw up their business or they care more about who wins the election. And I would argue that they care more about their business. Political polling organizations were way off on the November 3rd presidential election for the second time in four years. And Washington University professor Liberty Vitter provided expert analysis as to what they got wrong and why on St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. The nation's most respected polling organizations all predicted Joe Biden to win in a landslide on November 3rd. That didn't happen. Biden's share of the national popular vote was a full three points lower than even the lowest predictions. His margins of victory in key state races were even smaller. Those razor-thin wins in battleground states meant no one was willing to call the election until Saturday. Now, that was unusual, but in some ways, it felt like deja vu. In 2016, pollsters were way off. Contrary to predictions, Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in just about every battleground state on the map, and then took states presumed to be safe for Democrats. So how did pollsters get it wrong in 2016 and then do it all over again in 2020? Well, Liberty Vittert has a few ideas. She's a Washington University Business School professor of practice and data analytics, and a feature editor at the Harvard Data Science Review. And she recently wrote an op-ed for the New York Daily News about just this. And she joins us today to discuss these ideas. So Liberty, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So you're very unusual in that you called 2016 for Trump, and you also said this year would be extremely close and that either side would be winning by a razor thin margin. What did you see that professional pollsters did not? You know, I think one of the the hardest part about professional pollsters and being a pollster is that you tend to just look at the data. And while I love data and I believe in data, every once in a while, and any really sort of good data modeler will tell you, you have to step away from your computer and really try to think about whether the assumptions you're making and whether your data is right. You know, you can have the best models in the world, but if your data in the first place isn't correct, it's it's gonna it's gonna go poorly as it did in both 2016 and 2020. And it totally makes sense what you're saying. And yet, I felt like after 2016, there was all this hand wringing of you know we looked at the wrong share of this voters and we needed to account for this and for that. Did we make the same mistakes in 2020 or a whole new set of mistakes? 
we made one of the exact same mistakes mm. and one new one. So it's always good to to it's always good to be trying to do new things. Sometimes <laughs> they right. don't work. Um, so it's the same mistake in the sense that the pollsters really underestimated the white rural middle America vote for Trump. Hmm. And the new mistake is that they did a very bad job of figuring out who the Hispanic vote was going to go for. So for example, what happened in Florida and Miami, they didn't think the Hispanic vote was going to go for Trump. And in fact, he actually won like significantly more of the Hispanic vote than he got in 2016. Hmm. Talking about that Hispanic vote, that seems like, I mean, the Florida part of it at least seems like a no-brainer. We've known for years that Cubans are distinctly more conservative than, than many other groups in this country, much less other Latino groups. How could people not have seen that coming? A huge issue is that pollsters tend to just lump Hispanic and Latino together as one, and they don't differentiate by whether you're Cuban or Venezuelan. So there's a whole new Venezuelan community in Florida now because of the crisis in Venezuela. And it's it's notorious that they don't actually split up the Latino vote into different groups. Hmm. Is that a matter of laziness or would it just be so impossible with all the different countries uh, Spanish-speaking Americans might come from? Could we break it down to that level of micro-targeting? We could. It's getting harder and harder. You know, if you think about it, what polling used to be is you picked up, you know, you picked up your telephone and you answered a pollster. And it, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, it sort of made sense because you were one of the 1500 people that Gallup would ask, you know, Mm -hmm. and you actually could change things. Now, I mean, I don't even have a landline and much less people that do. I don't think they even pick up the phone for pollsters anymore. Mm -hmm. And even if they could get cell phone numbers for everybody they need to reach, I frankly don't know anyone who answers their phone from an unknown number anymore. If somebody doesn't text you first to say, hey, it's so-and-so, this is my new number, pick up, people just don't answer. How do you even begin to overcome that fundamental problem, even beyond all the problems of this particular election? What um, a lot of pollsters have changed to doing is actually online. And so, but here's what the problem becomes, is that in order to get people to fill out online surveys, a lot of times we pay them. Hmm. So that's something called probabilistic. The fancy word for it is probabilistic versus non-probabilistic sampling. But, you know, inevitably when you're paying people to take a survey or a poll, you have, you know, you have people who are choosing to take those to get money. So there tends to skew who exactly you're talking to and who you're asking. Um, when you end up with your final results. Is there a way that you could do online surveys without having to pay people? They do, but again, how do you get people to do it? You know, I don't mm-hmm. ever, you ever fill out those surveys where it's like, you know, what was your, I never respond when it's the customer satisfaction. You know, once I'm done, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to say I'm one of these people that's going to go fill out the surveys, but I don't. So inevitably you have the people who are choosing to opt in versus people who aren't. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of issues that come with that. Now, Liberty, you had mentioned this rule vote, and I want to get to that in a minute. But I also do want to enjoy uh, welcome you, if you're listening out there, to join this conversation. You might well have good questions for Liberty, and she is an expert in all of this stuff related to polling. Um, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. And Liberty, again, is a Washington University business school professor of practice in data analytics. So this is really um, stuff she knows a lot about. Now, you mentioned part of what they got wrong again, the old mistake. This mistake had to do with the rural vote. Tell me what you think happened there. 
I think it's pretty clear what happened. A lot of pollsters are saying it's what we call non-response bias, which means that Trump voters just don't pick up the phone, mm-hmm. that they just don't answer. I disagree with that. I think it's what I would call shy voters or really what I would call scared voters. Um, the polarization in our country has obviously only gotten worse since 2016. And people are not, you know, they're picking up the phone, but they're not telling the truth. They're not saying who they're actually voting for. And I think, you know, the the way I think about this is simply by a, I mean, you know, I'm a data person, but simply by a story. I was talking to a guy. I've known him for a very long time. He's wonderful, loves his country, loves his family. But, you know, he said to me, I'm voting for Trump, but if anyone else asks me, not only am I not going to say I'm voting for Trump, I'm going to actually lie and say I'm voting for Biden. And if he's saying that to his friends, he's not going to pick up the phone to a stranger and tell them randomly that he's voting for Trump. I mean, we have people who are so afraid of either the hassle or what they're going to be called um, that they're just not even responding. Mm-hmm. And they're lying if they do. Do you think the narrative that all Trump voters must be incorrigible racists and, and talking here even about the ones who voted for Obama in 2008, do you think that's played a role in creating this environment where people feel like they can't even admit this in an anonymous political poll? Absolutely. And it's a real problem for pollsters, because if you can't even be told the truth about this, I mean, it's, you know, we see on Twitter and online that if you're a Trump voter, you're called a racist or a homophobic or anti-woman or, you know, whatever charge against your character that comes up with. And it makes it impossible to believe the data because people are just too afraid to say who they really are voting for. I've heard a second theory on this. There's some people who feel like they might be embarrassed, um, these these shy Trump voters. But the second theory is that maybe Maybe they're just screwing with the polls in the same way that they maybe don't like journalists and, and think we're all a part of fake news, that they feel like political polls are just part of this establishment that they want no part of and they enjoy screwing with it. Do you think there's anything to that? No, I think it's the same idea as thinking there's I think there's this, it's actually the same idea as thinking there's something like a widespread countrywide election fraud. The, like to actually go through with something like that and have it be as widespread to truly affect the polls or truly affect the election in that sense, it just take way too much to have to have this sort of widespread conspiracy almost to fool pollsters. So no, I think there's obviously individual actors as there are in anything that are going to do something like that, but there's no evidence that that's actually what's happening. So that you know the one theory is that it's Trump voters screwing with uh, with people doing polls, and then there's yet another theory. There's so many theories on every piece of what we're talking. Talking about today. And this is frankly tr- coming from Trump. He's saying that pollsters want to make it look like he doesn't have a chance because they don't want him to win. I know you've addressed this directly. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I, I actually had a long think about this. And, you know, I think pollsters definitely have their own biased opinions and want different people to win. But you have to decide if they're more willing to screw up their business or they care more about who wins the election. And mm-hmm. I would argue that they care more about their business. Pollsters trade off their reputations. They also get paid to do a whole lot of other things besides predict presidential elections. There's way, way other things, you know, market research for companies. You're there, And their business is based upon their reputation of being a good pollster or not. So it looks really bad on them when they screw this up so badly and it really could affect their business over the next couple years because they got this wrong so i just i you know it's it's whether you believe people care more about money or politics and i'm gonna have to go with money for this one yeah i think anybody arguing against profit as a motive is going to have a hard time in america i do want to go to the phone lines we've got some listeners uh with questions for you and one of them is aaron calling from st louis um aaron hi you're on st louis on the air 
Hi, good afternoon. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Uh, what's your question for Liberty? So I was curious because I've been seeing a lot. I've worked a few polls myself, but I've been seeing a lot about um, glitches in the electronic voting systems and um, things like that across the country. And I'm curious because even in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, they use two different electronic voting systems. And so that built a lot of mistrust. And I was curious to know what your thoughts were on all the various methods of electronic voting and how that can remain consistent. Okay, Aaron, thank you for that question. So, Liberty, do you think um, any of these issues um, with, with glitches with voting could play a role in how polls are turning things out? Well, that's a really good question that Aaron had, and it does make you feel nervous, right? If you know that there's glitches, it makes you feel really nervous. But most of these electronic systems have undergone sort of stringent testing mm -hmm. that shows what the error, the glitches could be. You know, it's sort of a, a known error. It's the devil you know versus the devil you don't. So they have an idea of how much error there actually is in these systems, and they account for that, or the glitches that happen in these systems. So while it may be very nerve-wracking and make you feel mistrustful of it, I can, it's the same idea as that there might be an individual actor who changes a ballot, you know, who's working at a poll station, but to think it's some sort of widespread error is just not the case. But it's a really good question. I understand why it makes you feel mistrustful of the system. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And now back to our conversation. We're talking today to Liberty Vittert. She's a professor of practice in data analytics at Washington University Olin Business School. And Liberty, we have a lot of callers who want to talk to you. But I have to ask you about one thing uh, before we get to that. Your father, uh, Mark Vittert, is quite well known to many St. Louisans, especially older St. Louisans. He was an older panelist, uh, an original panelist on Donnybrook. He helped start the St. Louis Business Journal. He was previously an owner of the Riverfront Times and St. Louis Magazine. Is his work in media part of what got you interested in politics and in political polling? Well, I think having sat around the dinner table every night as a child and been forced to argue with my brother and my father about politics probably probably spurred the interest. My mother's rule was that the arguing had to stop by dessert. So we're, <laughs> Did that we're work? I, not always. <laughs> no. I mean, if you wanted dessert, it certainly worked. <laughs> I understand your brother is a journalist as well. Uh, he's worked for Fox News. Uh, do you have the sense that the media relies too much on polling overall? I think that the media used to not rely too much on polling, but now that the pollsters are getting it wrong over and over again, I think the media has to take a new look at really how they look at polling. I also think that the media needs to be a little, well, either the media needs to be better versed or the pollsters need to be better explainers. So for example, when um, I, the Economist put out a poll saying that there was a 97% chance that Biden would win. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people tend to think that means, one, that it's going to be by a landslide. And they also think that means there's basically no chance that Trump could win. Mm -hmm. And that's not actually what it means. It means 97 out of 100 scenarios Biden will win and three out of 100 Trump will win. So there is still that real chance that he could win. And it also doesn't mean in any capacity by a landslide. It just means he's going to win. 
again. And the media over and over misinterpret that. So I don't know whose fault it is, but there's certainly an issue there of what these polls are really saying. I think that's a great point. And man, I think so many journalists are just bad at math. Um, and so many Americans are bad at math. And so that means, you know, we have to proceed with so much more caution than what we sometimes proceed with. I want to go back to the phone lines. Harry is calling from University City. Um, Harry, hello. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Um, yes. I wanted to ask, why don't they supplement polls more with things like focus groups where maybe across the country they could talk to selected groups of citizens um, in more detail, you know, to try to flush out more nuances in their thinking? Uh, Harry, I think that's a terrific question. And, and Liberty, it's interesting. The uh, Trafalgar Group, they're one of the few places that's been pretty on the money in the last couple elections. The guy who runs that, he says he just gets on the phone with people and talks to them sometimes for hours at a time. Is, is that what it's going to take? And could we get at that through focus groups like Harry suggests? Harry, I think you have a fabulous suggestion. Part of the problem is time and money. You know, focus groups cost a lot more to do it. But I, you know, I think that that's really really where it falls to. There are some ways that they're trying to figure out how to do ask questions on the phone or whatever online that are going to try to get at it more than just saying, who are you going to vote for? Because we know people tend to not necessarily tell the truth in that sense. Um, There was a study, actually, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, maybe, or somewhere, I can't remember. Um, It was out of USC. And what they did was they asked people, who are you going to vote for? And when they did that, um, Biden was up by 10 points. But then they changed the question. And instead of asking, who are you going to vote for? They said, who do you think your neighbors are going to vote for? Mm. And all of a sudden, Biden's lead reduced to almost just by two points instead of by 10. And it was that people were much more willing to say who they thought their neighbors were going to vote for, which was really who they were going to vote for, but they didn't have to say it themselves. Boy, that's So they're trying to figure out different ways to actually get at this answer. Well, that was a great question from Harry. Let's go back to the phone lines. Gail is calling from St. Louis. Um, Gail, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Thank you. I'm enjoying Liberty very much. And actually, my question had to do with the Trafalgar group also. Oh. And, and you've even mentioned the question, who do you think your neighbor is going to vote for? So I was going to ask, what more do you know about the Trafalgar group's methodology? And the questions that his the lead person there um, uh, asked for the 2020 election. Um, Gail, thank you for that question. And Liberty, my understanding is that Robert Cahaley, who runs the Trafalgar Group, he did call 2016 right. He got a lot of things right in 2020. He saw Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida going to Trump. But ultimately, he thought Trump was going to win, which wasn't the case. Uh, What do you know about what he's up to and, and whether his methods teach us something that we could learn from? You know, Gail, I wish I knew what he asked people on the phone because then I would be asking the exact same thing. I think, but you know, I think what his point is is that some it's it's exactly what we talked about right at the beginning um, of today is that sometimes you have to take a step back from the actual data and what your models are telling you and just talk to people. Make sure you're not you know going off on the wrong tangent and just sort of take a step back and make sure your assumptions are correct. And one of the the real questions about someone like the Trafalgar Group or other polling companies is what, you know, if you're if you're taking in a bunch of data to try to decide something, a lot of times people take data from different polls. You know, they're not just looking at one pollster, but they're having multiple pollsters. And the question is, is do you take data from pollsters who might have an ideological 
um, bend. So for example, Trump's PAC does do polling and they do extensive polling. Do you use their data? You know, they clearly have an ideological bent. They clearly want Trump to win. Does that mean that their data is bad or is it good? And, you know, I looked, we were talking, I was talking with the guy who does the economist polls, and he said that they chose not to use the Trump pack or any, any, um, polling that had an ideological bent. But he said when he went back and looked, if they had added in that data, their model would have done much better in 2020 than it did. Mm -hmm. So the real question is, do these ideological groups have some magic secret sauce that the other pollsters don't? Or is it just a fluke that they got it right, you know, that they were better than everybody else? That's interesting. And maybe taking some of their data or taking what they do, but making sure to take it with that grain of salt, knowing that they are coming in with a strong bias, but they might have some good data. Exactly. Let's go back to the phone lines. Nick is calling from St. Louis. Uh, Nick, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. My question is, can we now, with hindsight being 2020, look at the voter results and look at the polls and then somehow use that to calculate a medium for, for next for next election and, and kind of make those corrections? That's a great question. Thanks, Nick. Liberty, thoughts on that? Nick, that's a brilliant question. You should be a statistician yourself. Um, so that's the idea. The thought was that they would, it's called, in statistics, it's another fancy word called back testing, which means you test against stuff that happened previously. So the idea was that pollsters would take what they screwed up in 2016 and apply that to 2020. But two things happened. One, they decided that 2016 was potentially just an anomaly. And so why test against just one thing? And the other was that some of them tried to they just didn't do it enough you know the actual difference the the margin by which the pollsters were wrong in 2020 was significantly more than the margin they were wrong in 2016 and you know my hypothesis on this is that our country has just become so much more polarized that even more people are not willing to say that they were voting for Trump. Hmm. We got a fascinating question from our St. Louis on the Air Facebook page, uh, where we often discuss things even before we get on the air. Stacy asks, can we believe the polls about issues like health care and gun control? Did they have the same sort of problems as these Biden versus Trump polls? That's such a good question. Yes, they have a lot of the same problems. They also have even bigger problems. And let me use an example with um, the presidential election to explain that. Um, one of the main sort of variables or factors that goes into deciding who's going to win or not or predicting who's going to win or not is approval ratings. You know, how well do you think the president is doing? It also has the same thing when it comes to health care or gun control. How much do you support this policy or that policy? And the problem is, is it doesn't, oh, it, with most of the questions that get asked, it doesn't compare it to anything. So for example, I'd say, do you approve or disapprove of Trump? So you put, you know, either approve, let's say you put disapprove. Mm -hmm. So you disapprove of Trump, but I'm not comparing him to anyone else. I'm not saying, do you disapprove of Biden more? So it's very possible that you may disapprove of Trump, but maybe you disapprove of Biden even more which means you're going to vote for Trump. But it would seem in the in the approval ratings that you're not going to vote for Trump because you disapprove of him. And the same thing happens a lot of time with gun control and health care is they ask you, what do you think? But they don't ask it in comparison to anything else. And so you don't actually get a real feel for what people believe in or are going to ask the representatives to vote for. 
Hmm. Wow, this is all so interesting and so much more complicated than we in the media want to acknowledge. It's been fascinating talking to you. Liberty, I just have time for one last question in our final minute here. Um, do you think that you being based in St. Louis gives you a perspective that helps you see more clearly on these things from everybody who's talking to the same people in Washington and in New York? Absolutely. I think St. Louis has such an incredibly diverse and wonderfully diverse of thought community that I feel like it's it's just a for me, it's a better place to live than either one of the coasts. <laughs> and it just has it has a lot more sort of openness to it than really anywhere else. Well, and if that helps uh, fuel your work and, and helps you understand America better, then all the better. Uh, Liberty Bittert, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.